This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi guys, and welcome to another episode of When Diplomacy Fails. Thanks again for joining me, Zach Twomley, as we continue the story of Britain Goes to War. I'd like to remind you once again that When Diplomacy Fails podcast is a member of the Agora Podcast Network, and that this month we are promoting David Crowther's A History of England podcast. So, by all means, check out A History of England and all the other contingent parts of Agora Podcast Network to continue your listening and learning pleasure. Another thing, it's a bit of news I guess, is that You may have remembered a while ago I told you that I was applying to Cambridge and to Oxford to do a history PhD and that Cambridge have given me an offer, which is great, and that I'm still waiting on the funding. I still am waiting on the funding. Nothing much has changed there, really. I'm still waiting to hear back from the scholarships and stuff that I've already applied to. But recently I got word from Oxford that they also wanted to offer me a place. So what this means is that I now have, well, two choices, I suppose. And even though I'm kind of leaning more towards Cambridge at the moment because it's supposed to be the best for history and it's kind of where I wanted to go in the first place, it is pretty cool that the two best universities in the UK and two consistently highly rated, sometimes in the top five between the two of them, uh, universities in the entire world both said yes to me. Like, that's pretty cool. So yeah, keep your support coming, keep your monetary, spiritual, moral support coming. All of it's really, really, really appreciated. I would also encourage you to really, if you're not really a big fan of giving me a big chunk of money at once, which I completely understand, I would encourage you to look at the subscription options, which basically entails you giving me a small, small amount of money every month. It is so, so tiny, I really don't think you'll notice it. So uh, with that being said, I'm not going to beg you for any more money because I already feel a bit like a bit ridiculous. But I think that the yes from Oxford is a really good sign. It kind of makes me feel good about my chances for scholarships and for funding. Because surely if the two biggest ones say yes, then another most important yes in terms of money is right around the corner, right? Hopefully. Anyway, I'm not going to ramble anymore, but please check out wdfpodcast.blogspot.ie and see if there's any chance at all you could support Zach Twomley, because it's really, really appreciated, whatever you do. Okay, we've got a lot to get through, so... Let's get down to it. I'll now take you to the year 1878 once again, except this time will be about mid-March or so. Thanks very much for listening. When Diplomacy Fails presents Britain Goes to War an in-depth examination of the British Empire from the closing stages of the Victorian era to the opening phases of the First World War and beyond. Section 2. Background. Part A. The Golden Age. Chapter 23. Lord Derby's conservative career was on its last legs. 
After having battled against the whims of Prime Minister Benjamin Disraeli, the ambitions of Lord Salisbury and the hopes, fears and beliefs of his other colleagues in between, the embattled Foreign Secretary had emerged on the other side in mid-March 1878, with only a shell of his former reputation, constitution and energy intact. The years of government since 1874 would have been challenging enough considering the circumstances, but Darby was also unfortunate enough to hold his position at the exact same time when imperialistic ideals, questions of patriotism and notions of prestige had begun to shape what it meant to actually lead the British Empire. Most of all, these issues warped what it had once meant to be a conservative statesman into something far more different, a reactionary, belligerent, risky and in many respects bombastic foreign policy was the one now being advocated by individuals in Darby's own party, most notably by his chief and former pal, Disraeli. The very style of foreign policy making for which the party was named, Conservative, no longer seemed to hold the traction that it did in the minds of his colleagues as new challenges, ideas and theories abounded. Darby had fought through numerous proposals. He had watered down belligerent memos to the Russians he had opposed and then reduced the impact of the insistence of many of his colleagues to send the fleet of the Dardanelles where it would surely irk foreign opinion. He continued to make his disapproval known about the idea of occupying a Turkish or other random island for the sake of British interests, whatever that meant. All the while, Darby had rallied against the conservative and liberal press, which took turns biting pieces off him. He continued to maintain an invaluable professional relationship with Russian ambassador Peter Shuvalov, and he remained the leading force behind the anti-war party, which so many times in the past had frustrated Disraeli's aggressive aims. Darby stood for the resolute, cautious, considerate foreign policy of old. Disraeli stood for action in the name of principles such as prestige and public opinion, which to the foreign secretary was the very antithesis of what conservatism was all about. Disraeli's desire to do something out of the fear of being accused of not having acted or being weak-willed simply was not compatible with the ethos of Darby. One of them had to budge, and with Disraeli possessing the benefit of ideological winds blowing in his direction, and having the backing of the majority of cabinet, the foreign secretary looked certain to have to fall on his political sword again. March 1878 had been an immensely troubling month for Darby, as the terms of the Russo-Turkish peace, known as the Treaty of San Stefano, had been learned of. This punctuated a bad month for the Foreign Secretary, and it was about to get worse. Shuvalov was able to comment in mid-March that conditions in Britain defied all logical appreciation, is latterly become no longer political but psychological, dependent not upon events but on the temperament of English and public opinion. In a sense, this captured the situation Darby was up against by this stage. With his reputation in tatters and tensions between the British and Russians at an all-time high, the British public had adopted a tone of defiant patriotic action, one which Disraeli had long been waiting for, and which went against everything Darby stood for. It certainly didn't help that Shuvalov couldn't get confirmation from his masters at home whether they would be willing to submit San Stefano to the hypothetical conference which continued to give Darby hope. The Tsar and his court had become increasingly evasive following the 4th of March publication of that treaty's terms, and some in cabinet, among them Salisbury, feared that the Russians may act swiftly rather than see their war plunder disappear. To preempt this, on the 18th of March, Salisbury and Disraeli devised a scheme whereby they could have the best of both worlds. A warning would be sent to the Russians urging them in the most stringent terms to steer clear of the Bosphorus, this would show the Russians that London was serious and satisfy the public at home until Britain was better prepared for war. Though Disraeli reasoned war should come soon and that Britain was more than ready for it, Salisbury argued with his political ally that the British public was not quite there yet and that the ground still required some prepping. The publication of a terse, loud warning to the Russians would appear in Russian newspapers as a defiant gesture and symbol of British decisiveness it would also force the Russians to act. If they ignored the warning, the British public would be further stoked and thus prepared for the eventual action. But if they heeded it, then British influence could be declared at an all-time high. The problem, of course, was getting the measure past Derby, who would certainly oppose such a provocative measure. To skirt conveniently around the Foreign Secretary's opposition, Disraeli and Salisbury planned a bit of deception, which I alluded to at the end of the last episode. 
In order to get the measure approved, the whole venture would simply be presented to Cabinet and Derby on the 18th of March as a secret repetition to the Russians of the old warning to not occupy Constantinople or Gallipoli, something which, in the tense circumstances, Derby could hardly approve of, since from his point of view it would reopen Anglo-Russian communications, show St. Petersburg that London still meant business, and give the Russians the option to quietly backtrack without losing face. The next day, though, Darby discovered he had been totally duped by his colleagues. One can imagine him bursting through Disraeli's residence on the morning of the 19th of March with the newspaper in hand, slamming it dramatically down on the Prime Minister's table and gesturing to Disraeli and the paper in angry, most likely colourful language. The scene is certainly representative of what Darby felt and said himself, because when he realised that a fresh warning had been delivered to the Russians and that it had not been communicated in secret but instead was plastered all over the morning papers, the penny would have dropped. He had been fooled into signing off on something which would undoubtedly increase rather than decrease the tension, and his colleagues remained in absolute denial as to how the whole issue had occurred. I wish I could think that the disclosure was the result of accident or indiscretion, but the facts point to a different conclusion, Darby claimed. What can one infer, as John Charmony in his book Splendid Isolation noted, from the fact that information which was bound to increase tension between Russia and England has been leaked to a newspaper which was known to be in favour of Disraeli's bellicose line? Darby would not be quiet. He warned both Salisbury and Disraeli that he would soon raise the issue in Cabinet. Whether he raised it or not, Darby would have known that by this act of deception he had been outflanked. It was now critical that the impasse and tensions between Russia and Britain be resolved. Darby thus sent an urgent communique to Shuvalov. It was time to rely on his Russian friend once again. Darby met with Shuvalov on the 20th of March with the aim of persuading the Russian to get some kind of answer from his masters and hopefully ease the tensions. Unbeknownst to Darby, Shuvalov had already gotten instructions from the Russian Chancellor Gorchikov to the effect that Britain had no business being in the Bosphorus and that Russia would never agree to submit San Stefano to a conference. Shuvalov, in his efforts to save the peace and maintain Darby's hopes, urged Darby to delay any provocative action while he tried to sort out some solution, read, miracle, which would please both sides. In response to this, Darby insisted that Britain's wish to see San Stefano submitted to a conference did not necessarily mean that she wished to significantly alter it or reduce its gains for Russia, but Shuvalov knew that his masters at home did not believe this. In St. Petersburg it was believed that once San Stefano was submitted to the conference, the Russian gains would be lost in the face of mounting international pressure. On the 22nd of March, the terms of San Stefano were published in the press, causing yet more agitation and posturing in Britain. Disraeli noted with some satisfaction that People are very alarmed and think war instantaneous. San Stefano was Disraeli's proof that Russian ambitions had gotten out of control, a claim he had regularly made in cabinet, but which could now be supported by the evidence. The situation grew bleaker still for Derby when on the 25th of March it was learned that Russia had unilaterally rejected any notions of British conditions which Derby had tried to negotiate earlier with Shuvalov. To Disraeli this was confirmation enough. The next day he informed Queen Victoria that he planned to summon cabinet and call up the reserves, dispatch troops from India and plan an occupation of two important points in the Levant. Noting to his sovereign that the Critical time has come. Disraeli insisted that only a bold and determined policy would now secure peace. With the total support of more than half of cabinet, Disraeli spoke from a position of strength on the 27th of March, 1878. Darby's efforts for peace had been exposed as useless, and with tensions higher than ever, war would be certain unless Britain sent a harsh warning to the Russians now. All our attempts to be moderate and neutral and avoid collision with Russia have lessened our influence with Russia and have caused it to be thought that we had no power, Disraeli said. With the terms of San Stefano public knowledge, action at this stage was critical or British influence would surely plummet. How could Britain lay claim to a sphere of influence and do nothing to defend it? She had to make a strong stand, as Disraeli claimed, A bold policy will secure peace, one of conciliation will end in war. 
Disraeli made a fresh appeal to his colleagues' integrity and patriotism, and proposed once again as a strategy the series of measures which had been rejected individually over the previous months. The seizure of an island, the calling of the reserves, the dispatch of final warnings to Russia, the recalling of the British ambassador, the expulsion of the Russian ambassador, the reinforcement of the British fleet in the Mediterranean, and the sending of this same fleet up the Dardanelles. All of these measures, Disraeli now insisted upon, and all were approved of bar the one voice of opposition now in the room, Lord Darby's. Darby made clear his opposition, and noted his colleagues that he could not stay on as Foreign Secretary if this was how Britain's government determined their foreign policy course to be. He told his colleagues that matters had come to a point where the two roads diverge, and that it was understood that my resignation was to follow. Darby left the meeting broken and in despair at the direction his country was veering towards, but he was determined to make one last stab at saving the peace. He met with Shuvalov late in the evening straight after that meeting, and this time he tried a different tactic by using some deception of his own. Rather than explain all that had gone down in cabinet, the foreign secretary merely hinted to Shuvalov that this would be their last conversation, and that matters had come to a head which he couldn't support, and that he thus had to resign. As a final act, Darby assured Shuvalov that he believed deep down that his colleagues didn't want war, and that they felt pushed into this situation by Russian intransigence and an unwillingness to negotiate. Darby insisted that a direct Russian proposal for negotiations with Britain might salvage the situation, but that British reputation was at stake and Russia would have to act fast. Darby's cryptic statements to Shuvalov caused the latter to wire his own panicked messages back home. Britain, Shuvalov insisted, had gotten rid of the only minister who had favoured peace with Russia, and now the peace of the world depended upon what Russia would do next. Darby's letter of resignation was drafted the next day, but it was lost amidst the excitement and confusion of the time, as the last days of March 1878 were fraught with orders pinged back and forth, ordering the calling up of the reserves and the mobilisation of various fleets and forces. For his part, Darby held back this time from sending a letter to Disraeli, as he had before. Those kind of personal touches had apparently lost much of their sheen with the rapid decline in the Disraeli-Darby friendship, but Darby did send a letter to the Queen. Within the letter, the former Foreign Secretary stated that Nothing but a strong conviction of duty to the state could have made him break off from colleagues whom he respected and regarded, especially his old friend Lord Beaconsfield, from whom it is a real pain to be separated. Though she had never been Darby's biggest fan, to put it lightly, Even she had to admit that it was a very good and proper letter. Darby had done his best during his four years in office to act on the principles which he felt governed what it meant to be a conservative foreign secretary. It was perhaps because of his relationship with the Prime Minister, or because of his respect for him, that he was unable to confront and directly challenge Disraeli's subversion of these same principles, and this unwillingness to land the killer blow, as we've seen before, proved to be his downfall. Darby told Northcote that he planned to rest for the moment and take no more part in public business than is forced upon me. He may have thought that this breach with his colleagues was only temporary and that, as before, he would return to his old posting soon. But this would not be the case. The next time Lord Darby held any office of significance, it would be on the opposite sides of the benches as a Liberal MP and Secretary of State for the Colonies in 1882, under... William Gladstone's administration. Had his former friend Disraeli still been alive by that year, it would have been immensely interesting to note his reaction in seeing his former close friend and confidant now serve Gladstone's government, but history would not allow such scenes to occur. Darby resigned from Conservative government for the last time on the afternoon of the 28th of March 1878, and just like that, the most important stumbling block for Disraeli's aggressive policy and perhaps one of the most underrated ministers in terms of his historical significance and importance, was now gone. If the fall of Lord Derby meant bad things for the old conservative tradition, it surely meant great things for Disraeli's new way of doing business. Yet the transition between old and new was not so straightforward. 
Salisbury took over Darby's position as the Foreign Secretary, and though he had no qualms about placing his own stamp on the office, he was not so foolish that he sought to spurn all the efforts Darby had made there. The major issue for Salisbury was that times were changing, and that Darby had not been willing to change with those times. This is a point made by John Charmley as well. Quote, Darby suspected that Disraeli's ultimate object was to change the map of Europe, when he heard Disraeli and Salisbury insist that, Unless we do something decided, we shall not be treated with respect or believed to be in earnest when the conference meets. He did not readily understand what they meant. The notion that the essential thing in diplomacy was to not lose popular favour was not one to which he could subscribe. The Conservative Party was there to act as a break on ill-conceived enthusiasms, not to promote them. End quote. We have followed this saga of Disraeli's troubled ministry for numerous episodes because of the lessons it could have taught politicians in 1914 had they thought to look back to them. Divisions in cabinet were not a phenomenon of the July crisis, and the ideals which divided the individuals then played a large role in dividing individuals here as well. The notions of what it meant to follow a conservative foreign policy in the late 1870s caused as much problems and definitions as it did when it came time to define what a liberal foreign policy was in 1914. The crisis in identity which occurred for men like David Lloyd George, Sir Edward Grey, Winston Churchill, Herbert Asquith and others had much to do with the challenges that forming a strong, determined, consistent and honourable policy posed to men like Disraeli, Salisbury and Darby here. The difference of course is that, under the influence of such ideals, the first group of men led Britain to embark upon the First World War. The second group of men helped push Britain into participating into a conference. The consequences of the latter may seem less severe, but the values and principles which Disraeli so upheld like national honour, reputation, prestige, influence, etc. were developed in those experiences and British statesmen would struggle with the implications of them right up until the time that the First World War broke out. In other words, the crisis in conservative identity experienced by Darby and others changed how they viewed their responsibilities as British statesmen and Britain's position within the world. Salisbury's ideological transformation is a good example of how such challenges had the potential to change people. This was part of a wider change in British society that saw it become more aggressive, more imperialistic and more concerned with notions of prestige and influence that Darby had so lamented and Disraeli had so valued. In a sense, the struggle began with Disraeli's conservative administration of 1874-80, to but it bled into every successive administration which followed it and it played a large part, as we shall see, in redefining what it meant to be a liberal statesman as well once that party split in half under the weight of the issues and lessons which Disraeli's second premiership had brought up. In the week following Darby's departure from the Foreign Office, Salisbury's takeover and delivery of a circular memo on the 1st of April 1878 supposedly gave an exhausted Russia the opportunity to give ground without loss of face at least according to historians of the late Victorian era. But the reality was not so simple. Tensions actually increased over the month of April, without Darby's familiar link to Shuvalov acting as a foil against aggressive intentions, and rumour and intrigue circulated throughout the press that calling up of reserves and stalling of a conference meant that war had been decided on in Cabinet, and that it was set to be a glorious one, according to some Conservative organs. In defiance of this picture, the former foreign secretary made his voice heard. Contrary to everything Disraeli wanted, Lord Derby stood up in the House of Lords on the 8th of April and made his opposition in the present and past known to any notion of war with Russia, as well to the current stiff policy which caused more problems than it solved. The entire speech is striking in its revelations. It would have cast a negative shadow over Disraeli's claims in the past that no cabinet divisions existed, but it is also notable because it was Darby's most public representation of his own opposition that he had ever himself made. Freed from his old office as Foreign Secretary, Darby now apparently had nothing to lose, and in the name of exposing the truth he was willing to bin every grandiose claim that his former friend, as well as his successor in the Foreign Office, had made. In a lengthy speech, which will actually bring us to the end of the episode, it is so long, 
that makes nonetheless for incredible reading. Darby said, My lords, I think this is a time when the whole situation may be fairly reviewed, because, until the Treaty of San Stefano was made public, the materials for discussion were wanting, and if, now that the terms of the treaty are known, discussion were further delayed, it might be too late to serve any useful purpose. Well, the government determined to call out the reserves, and the formal declaration is accordingly made that the present state of affairs is one of emergency. Now, my lords, I am not quite satisfied on that point. I want to know what the emergency is and who has created it. I can interpret that announcement only in one manner. Namely, that the government consider that negotiations with Russia have either been or shortly are to be broken off, and that immediate war is an event which must at least be looked forward to as probable. My lords, I cannot take that view of the case. It is not the fact that the diplomatic means are exhausted. The negotiations for the Congress, it is true, have... Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Come to a deadlock, but I do not know that that fact by itself is much to be regretted. With the single exception of Austria, I do not know that any single power has ever been anxious that the Congress should be held. Russia objected to it in the first instance, Germany came into it with some reluctance, the French government did not disguise their aversion from it, giving the somewhat characteristic reaction that they would appear there in a different position from that which they held in 1856. Now my observation is, and I believe it to be the opinion of most diplomats, that a conference or congress is a very convenient agency for putting on record, in the most formal manner, international decisions which have already been come to in substance. But in these days, when we can ask a question and get an answer from the furthest end of Europe within 24 hours, it is just as easy to ascertain opinion and almost as easy to conduct negotiations outside of Congress as within. If I had to deal with the matter, I should endeavour to keep the Congress alive, saying and doing nothing to prevent its ultimate meeting, but letting it stand over until the way was smoothed by private and separate negotiations between the powers concerned. Now, my lords, looking at the question from that point of view, I regret the steps which the government has taken. They put forward a series of objections to the Treaty of San Stefano, objections of a most comprehensive character, and they communicate these objections not only to other European governments, which is perfectly reasonable, but to the people of this country and the entire public of Europe. Now, my lords, when in addition to that we proceed to arm in such a manner as to indicate an expectation of war, the general impression must be that the English government demands that the Treaty of San Stefano should be torn up and is preparing to support that demand by force. This is said to be a spirited and decided policy. So it is. But what is the next step to be taken? There are only three possible issues, and of these three, one, I am afraid, is hardly within the range of possibility. It is possible that our demands may be acceded to, 
that would be a signal diplomatic triumph, of which I would be the first to congratulate my noble friend. But that Russia should give up most of the results of the war, and that she should undergo what the public opinion of Europe would pronounce to be a diplomatic humiliation, is a result which I can hardly conceive can be hoped for. The second possibility is that we, on our side, may withdraw or greatly modify the objections we have taken. But in that case, the diplomatic failure would be on our side. It would be well enough in a private communication between two powers or in a private bargain between individuals to ask in the first instance a great deal more than you meant to get. But after a declaration of that kind is made public, and after you are prepared to apparently support it, to drop it, or recede from the position you have taken up, it creates a situation of an almost ridiculous character. As to the circular of my noble friend at the head of the foreign office, if it had been addressed, as I have no doubt it was originally intended to be addressed, to the British representative at the conference as a summary of what the British government desired to see accomplished, I should have no criticism to make upon it. But I am afraid that when the government put forth its programme to all Europe as that which they intended to follow, and when they accompanied that announcement with military measures not in themselves unimportant, and the effect of which will be enormously exaggerated abroad, they are making concessions on the part of Russia much more difficult than before. I go as far to say that if Russia were willing to take back her treaty, though I do not contend that operation would not be beneficial to Europe, it would at least be a strong proof that she is not so aggressive and dangerous a power as we have been in the habit of thinking. On the other hand, if Russia, as I believe, is not willing to cancel the treaty, but if, as I also suppose, she is prepared in deference to European opinion, to consent to a considerable modification of what she has proposed, then I think the difficulty has been increased in two ways. First, by the publication of these negotiations, and next, by the appearance of menace which that publication involves. We know how difficult it is in private life, when anything like a threat has been used, to yield that which, if such pressure had not been brought to bear, would have been readily yielded. I may be asked, however, what, in the circumstances, would you do if you were consulted? My answer is that I would not have pressed matters on in such hot haste. There is just now great irritation against us in Russia, and I do not think I am wrong in saying that in this country a very strong feeling of irritation against the Russian government exists. I am speaking of public opinion in both countries and not of their governments. I do not believe that there is any strong ground for that irritation on either side. By giving an opportunity for that feeling to subside, it appears to me that no harm could be done, while some good might be effected. I should have placed our views directly before the Russian government and discussed them point by point. The opinions of other governments would not have been difficult to obtain. On many points we have got them already, and I think that many of the results of a Congress might be attained without the rather cumbrous machinery of a Congress itself. No doubt I may be told that while we were doing this, all we were losing time. While it is certainly an evil to prolong the state of anxiety and suspense in which we have already so long continued, but where military measures are concerned, I own I do not see on the English side what good reason there is for haste. Assuming that the worst happens, that we are not able to settle this question peaceably, and that war is proclaimed, who, I would ask, would lose the most by delay? Russia has an enormous army to keep up. She will not only be compelled to keep that army to its greatest present numerical standard, but even to add to its numbers for sake of effect. We know that she will be ill-able to prepare this expense. As to ourselves, we are free in a military point of view to choose our own time of place. The seas are ours, and no Russian men of war are likely to be seen there once a war breaks out. No English dependencies can even be threatened by any Russian army. I do not therefore understand what reason there is for exceptional haste in strengthening our land forces in face of a war which, even if it come, ought to be mainly a naval one. My noble friend has certainly suggested that the Russian army, if it could once get across the narrow strip of sea, might march through Syria and threaten Egypt. Now, we have always, in considering points of this kind, borne in mind the fact that we are the mistress of the seas, and that we could sufficiently defend Egypt by naval means. I do not see how the remarkable operation of which I am speaking is to be executed. I am at a loss to understand how a Russian army could march all through Syria and reach Egypt before a British man-of-war could leave Basica Bay and arrive at Alexandria. I do not therefore understand this haste in calling out our reserves. 
I could understand it if it were simply the object to strike while the iron is hot, in other words, if it were for the purpose of taking advantage of the military feeling which is now so strong throughout the country, but which probably may cool down in the course of a few weeks. But my noble friends would, I am sure, disclaim that imputation, and I give them credit for entire sincerity. There are, in this connection, three questions which must be answered sooner or later. Have you settled what are your means of fighting? Who are to be your allies, and what is it you are fighting for? The first question is one to which I do not profess to be able to give a clear answer. The only thing I see plainly is that we believe England and Russia may now go on for a very long time without inflicting a vital injury on either side. You may very easily bring Russia to a state of bankruptcy, and when you do that you will have brought ruin on English holders of a considerable number of Russian securities. There is not, however, I believe on record a case in which any war was stopped in that way. Poor though Russia may be, and no doubt she is poor, she has an enormous territory and can always find men and food. Now when these two requisites are supplied in unlimited abundance and a martial spirit animates a people, defensive fighting may go on for a very long time. You may blockade the Russian ports, but the losses sustained will not all be on one side. You may keep Russian corn out of this country, by which your own people will be the chief losers. But in these days of railroads, the power of blockades is, except in very special cases, greatly limited, and with the German ports all open, all you could really accomplish by means of the most rigorous blockade would be to compel the commerce with Russia to make a considerable circuit. It has been said that a war between this country and Russia, no other power taking part in it, would not be very unlike one of those duels between German students of which we used to hear, fought with sword blades of which only an inch or two at the ends were left bare. They might inflict a cut here and a gash there, they might cut off a nose or do an injury to an eye, but they were powerless to inflict any vital wound. All this you cannot help, nor can you do anything serious by land against an enemy whose strength was only half developed when the first Napoleon invaded the country with 500,000 men and failed. We, on the other hand, are absolutely free from risk from attack by Russia, except in so far as intrigues and secret negotiations may do something to weaken our authority in India. Now, my lords, I assume that there is not one of us here who desires a war at any time, but I may observe that... In a popularly governed country like this, where the people are easily excited, where they are apt to complain if their armies do not perform in possibilities, remembering as we do the excitement and agitation at the time of the Crimean War, the most inconvenient kind of war to enter into is one which is very prolonged, very costly, and which is likely to be untimely decisive. Now, my lords, I come to a question, in dealing with which I feel more at home. In the event of a war against Russia being undertaken, whom are we likely to have for allies? Now that is a matter upon which we have abundant means of forming a judgment, and I can tell you with certainty who will not be our allies. In Germany, so far as the government is concerned, the feeling has been from the very beginning of these transactions, as as is abundantly proved on the face of documents which have been laid before Parliament, one of warm and undisguised sympathy with Russia. That may not be the feeling of the German people, there is every reason to suppose that, so far as a large portion of the German people is concerned, that is not the feeling which exists. But we do not have to deal with the German people, we have to deal with the military oligarchy that governs Germany. And, as a matter of fact, neutrality, and that which would not be called a benevolent neutrality, is all I think that we could expect from Germany. From Germany I pass to France. What is the line likely to be taken by the French government? That is a question which I can answer without the slightest hesitation. I can do so not because of any private or exclusive information, but judging by what we all know of the state of feeling in that country. There is not, I believe, a single French politician of any party who would accept the policy of another Crimean war. The fact, so far as I am able to form an opinion, is that the Crimean war was never popular in France. We all know that that war, however useful or beneficial in its results, was made by the late emperor of the French for personal and dynastic objects. He at the time stood in a very peculiar position. He exercised supreme power, but he found it very difficult to get any respectable men to come near him. 
The little transaction of the Paris boulevards was fresh in men's minds. The recollection of it had to be effaced, and in these circumstances he, as an absolute sovereign no doubt, thought it a wise policy to sacrifice 100,000 French lives in order to secure the prestige and respect which he expected he would accrue, and which undoubtedly was accrued to him from an alliance with this country. That regime has, however, collapsed, as everybody knew that it would sooner or later. And in the present political situation of France, it seems to me that there is little prospect of her joining us in a policy of war. From France, I pass to Italy. There are no doubt the circumstances are extremely different, but the result is, I am afraid, the same. Sardinia in 1854 joined the Allies in a most gallant and spirited manner. Sardinia in 1854 was just in that position in which an adventurous policy is sure to be very popular. She wanted a great deal and possessed very little. But Sardinia is now absorbed in Italy. Italy is complete and is content. Her finances require to be reorganised, her administration to be consolidated. And I am sure neither my noble friend at the head of the foreign office, nor anyone else, entertains much hope of a common military action with us in the case of Italy. There remains no doubt one great power, and that is Austria. I fully admit that if you are to seek, with a chance of success, for an ally anywhere on the continent, Vienna is the quarter to which you must look, but it is, I think, fairly open to doubt whether it would be safe for us to rely much on Austrian cooperation. I am only stating that which everyone knows when I say that there are very close and intimate ties between the three emperors. In the next place, situated as Austria is, she would hesitate before embarking on anything which might be regarded as a rash policy and hardly come to a rupture with Russia unless she were previously assured of the support, or at least the neutrality, of Germany. Her population, too, is divided into many great races not very friendly to one another. Austria is a country which a single unsuccessful campaign might not impossibly break up. Then you have to look to the internal divisions of the empire. No doubt the Magyars have strong sympathies with Turkey, but a directly opposite view is taken by the Slavs. Then you have the Austro-Germans, who want only peace. With two independent parliaments pulling different ways, with a army partly Slav, and to that extent dangerous to use against Slavs, with finances in such a state that I understand she had considerable difficulty in raising the five million or six million pounds required for the first mobilisation of her troops, with all these elements of weakness, of confusion and of discord, Austria, it seems to me, is a country on whose efficient aid we cannot fairly count. Then, my lords, admitting, as I undoubtedly do, that the Austrian government are sincere in their professions, assuming, if you please, that she is more efficient as a military power than I individually believe her to be, the wide divergences between Austrian interests and those which we consider ours are such that, even if she were to enter into an alliance with us, a compromise might at any time be effected between her and Russia, by which we would lose that alliance. You cannot be sure that if Austria will come into the field with us as an ally, we cannot be sure that if she does so, she will not go out of the field without us, we may not have to go out of the field without her. Such is the state of things, and in the circumstances I am compelled to ask, if we are, I do not say drifting, but rushing into war, what is it we are going to fight for? What is to be the result of the war, assuming it to be successful? I know at least what it will not do. One class in this country, and it is a rather numerous class, will be sure to be equally disappointed whatever happens. Those who profess an admiration for Turkey, those who lament the fall of the Turkish Empire, are out of court. You might have kept that empire alive for a time, but you cannot now restore it. My noble friend, the Secretary for Foreign Affairs, would be the last person to wish to do so. England would not allow it, and all of Europe would be against it. If then you cannot restore the Turkish Empire, what are you to do? Are you to go to war to cut off something from the pecuniary indemnity which Turkey has to pay to Russia, or to make various modifications in the details of the Treaty of San Stefano? Those are results which may be fairly attained by means of diplomatic negotiations. But the objects, it seems to me, are not of such transcendent magnitude as to justify the government in preparing to enforce them by war, or by threats of war. Consult the public, ask the first man you meet, and he will tell you nine times out of ten, oh, we have lost influence in Europe, and we must fight to retain it. Well, I do not admit this fact. If it is any satisfaction to us to know it, 
from one end of Europe to the other, England's movements are watched with intense anxiety. That is a satisfaction which we may enjoy at the present, whatever anybody may think of the transactions of the last two years. Whether they think we have done too much or too little or not done what we ought, there is one thing certain, that during these two years England has not in any quarter been regarded or treated as a feeble power. I own that individually this is not a kind of glory I care very much for, but such as it is, you have it. I would say more than that. If it were true in any respect that English influence in the East were diminished, and I should say it was diminished by a course of action which we deliberately and our own free choice adopted, we chose to stand neutral, conditionally neutral if you please. But the condition did not lessen the neutrality. We chose to stand neutral when we knew that Turkey must be defeated, and as almost ridiculous now to say, oh, that is quite true, but then, you see, when the war began, we did not count upon Russia obtaining such an accession of military prestige. If you did not expect that, what did you expect? The truth is that those whom I was once taken to task for calling our employers, the public, have not, from the beginning of this business to the end, known their own minds for six months together. Two years ago, it would have been almost dangerous for any man to get up in a public meeting and express in plain terms his doubt as to the disinterested philanthropy of Russia. Now the cry is all the other way around, and, as I believe, I have been an object of criticism in these two agitations. I may speak with impartiality, and I must say that the foolishness and virulence of each does not leave much to choose between the two. If I could from this place address the English people, I would venture to ask them how they can expect to have a foreign policy, I do not say far-sighted, but even consistent and intelligent. If, within 18 months, the great majority of them are found asking for different things, and things that are directly contradictory. When we might have saved Turkey if we had chosen, not a voice was raised in favour of that course. And now, when the enemy, if you choose to call him so, is inside the fortress, when the Russian army is at or near Constantinople, nearly everyone is crying that we ought to turn them out. I venture to ask whether a war for the sake of influence would be a war worthy of us. We have seen the experiment tried on a great scale not so very long ago. That was the motive, you might say the avowed motive, which led the late emperor of the French to pick a perfectly purposeless and senseless quarrel with Germany. We know how that ended, and I do not think the author of that war was much pitied, however much we might sympathise with the people who suffered with him. Grant that we should be more fortunate that we were successful and obliged Russia to give back nearly all she has taken. What then? You will not have gained the greater part of your object. You will not have destroyed Russian influence or substituted English influence in European Turkey, because Russian influence in that country, which is now to be called Bulgaria, rests only in a slight degree upon military success. It rests on what you cannot take away, Identity of race, community of religions, similarity of religion, traditional historic sympathies, and the common hatred felt against the common enemy. These are influences which you cannot take away. They will continue when not one Russian soldier is left in Bulgaria. They will continue even if English or Austrian soldiers had taken the place of the Russian government. I say, therefore, that if you go to war for the sake of influence over these populations, you are fighting for a shadow, and even that shadow you will not secure. My lords, I thought this was a convenient time to offer these general remarks on the policy which lies before us. I admit, of course, that there are circumstances by which we may be forced into war. But I think that there is a great objection to undertaking to accomplish by war that which, if you are to gain your object in the most complete and efficient manner, will have to be done again in twenty or twenty-five more years. We thought the work was done in 1856, and we know how far that expectation was disappointed. I certainly shall rejoice if my noble friends, by peaceable and diplomatic action, obtain those results for which they hope. I shall not be inclined to reproach them if, still confining themselves to the use of peaceable means, they obtain results considerably inferior to those put forward. But I must say I require something more than any of the reasons and arguments which I have heard either in this house or out of it, to show me that in the circumstances which now seem likely to arise, that there is a casus belli. Unless such a war be absolutely forced upon us, I object to it, because it will be a war undertaken without necessity, because it will be a war undertaken without a clear and defined object, because it will be undertaken with a divided country, and in all probability 
without an ally. In such a breathtaking speech did Darby advertise his opposition to his old colleagues, and in a sense, considering his impact in the last few episodes, it is a fitting end for our coverage of the man. While Darby would never have described himself as defiant or reactionary, it is satisfying in a way to see him stand up to his old cabinet and establish his objections in the public sphere. It would not necessarily cause any members of that cabinet to rethink their strategy, but it would serve to vindicate Darby's conscience, and he could now rest easy in the knowledge that his opposition to whatever came next was present on the historical record. The series of points he registered against the government's policy line would obviously have placed Israeli in an awkward position, but they also set Darby apart from his old colleagues and opened the way for the former Foreign Secretary's entrance into the Liberal Party camp. Perhaps, Darby may have thought, he would feel more at home ideologically in the peaceable, considerate and cautious policy line of William Gladstone than that of Disraeli. Gladstone, after all, had already made his opposition to Disraeli's reactionary line of foreign policy well known. Above all, though, in my opinion, Darby succeeds here in showing his integrity. Whatever historians have said of him in the past, that his wife passed secrets to the Russians, that he was a weak-willed man, that he was too naive to see the end coming, one cannot deny that he stuck to his guns the entire time, and that he stayed true to himself even while the world around him changed, and his position became dreadfully lonely at times. There's a lesson to be learned from Darby. Despite his eventual exit, his influence on the Conservative Party was profound. Though there was a fear that without his hand to hold Disraeli back, war would result, the residual imprint of his service on the Foreign Office meant that Salisbury chose the policy of pursuing a conference rather than pursuing war. It was a conference on terms more hasty and stiff than Darby would have liked, but without his residual hand there, Disraeli's second administration could well be credited with altering world history in a dreadful war, rather than merely altering what it meant to be a conservative British statesman. Next week, we'll see how their path towards that conference was travelled. Thanks for listening, and see you then. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.